you'll turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 46. going to read verses 1, so I'm going to back up a little bit to 45, verse 22, we'll start there, and then we're going to read down to 46, 5. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I've sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Bel has bowed down, and Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over, they have bowed down together, they could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it, and I will carry you. And I will bear you, and I will deliver you. To whom would you liken me? And make me equal. And compare me. That we would be alike. Let's pray again and ask God's help as we open up his holy word. Lord, we have come today with eagerness to worship with the saints and to be in your special presence. Oh, how we need this day of rest and worship. And we pray, Lord, that we would not have come here in vain today, but you would come down from heaven and give us all what we need, Lord, We might taste today and see that you are good. Bless us with your word. Feed us. Encourage the saints today in their most holy faith. Arouse by grace those who are non-believers here. That they would repent and believe in Christ. And be saved even this day to your praise and glory. And in everything said and done. May the name of the Lord Jesus be praised. It's in his name we ask these things. Amen. So why this passage? I was reading through this last year through my devotions and came to this passage in chapter 46 and thought about my parents, thought about people in our congregation getting older, not just in the faith, but in their years and entering or being in the graying years. And we pray for them week to week in prayer meeting, pray for them daily, individually. And I thought this passage would be a particular blessing to them and hopefully 
to some of you who are in the graying years, approaching the graying years. This year I'll turn 50. Started graying, obviously, before 50, so I guess I'm there as well. Uh, And it's sobering, and it's difficult, and it's hard. And I think the promises that God gives us here through Isaiah are very comforting. As we feel the weakness, the decline, as we enter into these years that can be very difficult, we need to be reminded, brethren, that we're not entering them alone. That God is with us, and just as he's carried us, he will continue to carry us. So I hope it will be of encouragement to you. That's a little bit of the reasoning for this message today. And uh, we're going to open up, first of all, by looking at the context here. I've spent a little bit, probably more time than I should in the context. That's probably the history, uh, my love of history that's coming out. But hopefully that will be a benefit. And then we'll move on to consider other points more particular to the application for today and the theme and thrust. The context, Isaiah was a prophet of Judah, particularly the southern kingdom. We read of that clearly in Isaiah 1.1, that he uh, prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, all kings of Judah. Haley, in his Bible commentary handbook, says his ministry probably took place between the years 745 and 695 B.C., During his lifetime, Isaiah would have witnessed the destruction and ruin of the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrian armies. There were two waves of Assyrian advance into northern Israel around 734 and the second around 721, resulting in their ruin. A few years later, they came back, the Assyrians, and advanced through 46 walled cities of Judah, taking 200,000 people into captivity. The Assyrians came to Jerusalem around 701, and with Isaiah's encouragement to pray, you'll remember that great account in the Old Testament, the Lord crushed the Assyrian army and delivered the city. So Isaiah preached and ministered during a spiritually dark time in Judah. God began to judge them for their sin. And Haley again in his handbook further says Isaiah's whole life was spent under the shadow of threatening Assyrian power. And he himself witnessed the ruin of the entire nation at their hands except for Jerusalem. Tradition says that Isaiah was killed by King Manasseh. Maybe he was one, the one or one of those spoken of in Hebrews 11.37 where it speaks of a martyr or martyrs being sawn in two. It's definitely true that Isaiah was a man of whom this world was not worthy. He's called, secondly, the Messianic prophet. Messianic prophet. The New Testament authors quote Isaiah more than any other Old Testament book. John 12, 41 says, Isaiah saw the glory of Christ and spoke of him. In my own Bible reading, again, we read it here in uh, 43.3, That verse sounded kind of familiar, didn't it? To me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Isaiah was given great privilege to see many wonderful things that were yet distant out into the future. And of those things, he spoke and longed to look into them. 
Isaiah prophesied of things that would happen nationally, politically to Israel and to other ancient nations. But the greatest things he spoke of and saw were things that had to do with the Messiah. Another example, very familiar to you, is Isaiah 53. There he speaks about the death of Jesus, and as Haley and others have put it, as if he were standing at the foot of the cross, beholding the death of Christ. But even more than that, having divine commentary flowing into his mind about the spiritual things that were happening while Jesus hung there upon the cross. It's amazing to think, when you read Isaiah 53, what it took for Isaiah to speak those things. Not only did he have to see the death of Christ, but he had to be given instruction as to the significance of that death. That it was an atoning death. He didn't die there as a criminal for his own sins, but in the place of sinners, in the place of others. And we have this hundreds of years told to us before it actually happened. And probably there is nowhere in the Bible where the theological significance of the cross is more clearly laid out and explained than in Isaiah 53. Would you agree with that? Where else in Scripture do we have the cross explained more fully, more beautifully than in Isaiah 53? He had great privilege, amazing visions of theological significance. The third thing is we go through the context in the chapters leading up to Isaiah 46. God is declaring his uniqueness and how incomparable he is to anything men would call God. Comparing himself to the idols that men worship in place of him. And one of the distinctions that he is reminding us of is that God knows the end from the beginning. He knows the future and predicts it throughout Isaiah's life and ministry. Our God knows the future. He's able to do things men cannot do. And, of course, the gods of the nations who cannot even see, hear, or speak. You can read a passages like this in 45, 20 through 22, verses we didn't read this morning and many other places through Isaiah. The fourth thing about the context, in the beginning of Isaiah 46, God through Isaiah predicts the destruction and ruin of Babylon and their gods, Bel and Nebo. That is what is being spoken of in the beginning of Isaiah 46. The destruction of Babylon and their gods. But remember, Babylon was not even an empire during Isaiah's ministry. They didn't rise to become a superpower in the ancient world yet. Who was the superpower? Assyria. Babylon would come later in the history of the world. The Babylonian captivity of Judah would not happen for another hundred years. And the Medes, the conquerors of Babylon, wouldn't happen. That 
event wouldn't happen for 150 years after Isaiah's prediction. The Assyrians were still in control. Babylon doesn't exist. Certainly the Median Empire that would conquer Babylon doesn't exist. And yet Isaiah speaks about these nations as if he was recounting history, doesn't he? As if it had already happened. As if these things took place. How is this possible? Well, because you know, Adam, there are two or three Isaiahs, not one. There's multiple people responsible for writing the book of Isaiah. That's how the world explains it. That's how the critics of the Bible have explained it the last hundred years. Is that the answer? That there's multiple Isaiahs who lived in different generations after those facts took place, and that's how we get the book of Isaiah? No, that's hogwash. That's garbage. That's heresy. The reason Isaiah knows these things is because he worships and serves a God who knows the end from the beginning. The only true God of heaven and earth. The God who planned it and who's working out all of his purposes according to his good counsel. And he's utterly distinct in this ability and he's proving it as you read through the Old Testament. Again and again and again, God proves himself to be God. The Bible, the revelations we have in Scripture are the only miracle you need to believe everything it says. There are things spoken of here that should confirm us in our faith, brethren. Should encourage us in our faith and should cause us to value the Scriptures, to continue to read them and meditate on them and memorize them and proclaim them because they are true and they contain wonderful things for our good and for God's glory. I mean, he speaks of King Cyrus who would allow Israel to go back to Jerusalem, Isaiah 44, 28. It is I who says of Cyrus, this is a political leader who wouldn't exist for another 150 years, he's my shepherd. And he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple your foundations will be laid. This is another interesting prophecy found in Isaiah because the temple is still in existence. The temple's not been destroyed yet. And yet he speaks of the temple being built up again. Doesn't this excite you, brothers? This excites me. He's speaking of the rebuilding of a temple that's still standing. It will be rebuilt. And in time, these passages, no doubt, would be of great comfort to the remnant taken to Babylon. To, to go back and to think about what Isaiah said and to place their hope in what Isaiah and Jeremiah and the other prophets said about their time in Babylon. Cyrus not born, a nation not even around, and he would be God's shepherd to bring Israel back to their land. He had it all planned out. I mean, that brings us just as an aside. I'm going to give you this application for free. God's going to give it to you. When we think of the political scenarios we find ourselves in in our own country, and you think about Myanmar, it is like never-ending, day after day, bombs. People running for their life, the saints in dire 
threat of losing their life and just the people there and what's happening in the world and we can get so anxious and we can get so worried and we can think it's all out of control and what's going to be next and when I turn on the TV tomorrow Monday morning what am I going to see and it's going to cause us to be afraid and we need to be reminded brethren that God already knows it and that he's over all of it in sovereign control working out all things The tiny things that have to do with our lives and the big things that have to do with the political movements of nations are all under the sovereign control of our God. And we don't have to worry. We can be at peace when our heart is stayed upon him, can't we? Yes, in every generation. We need, the saints need to be reminded of this, that he is the king of of kings he is a leader and a ruler of whom we don't have to be ashamed he can do all things he can do all things all right so let's look now at the contrast of our passage coming back to isaiah 46 1 through 5 the passage is all about contrast Verse 5 tells us this. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me? That we would be alike? Nobody compares to me. All about contrast. God says to Isaiah, let's talk about the gods of the nations and see how they compare to me. Better yet, let's talk, let's do this, let's talk about the gods of a nation, not yet worshipped by a nation, not yet created by men. Let's talk about them. You want to do that? And we'll compare them to me. They're not even on the scene yet. Amazing. God not only mocks the gods being worshipped by the nations in Isaiah's generation, But those that would be worshipped during the lives of his great-grandchildren by a nation not yet existing. That's what God's doing here. It's an amazing thing. The fate of those gods will be the fate of all gods and of every person that has existed or ever will. To me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear Allegiance, 45-23. It's true of Isaiah's generation. It's true of the generation that would be under Babylon. Brethren, it's true of our own generation. Every knee will bow. Modern man will bow his knee and swear allegiance that he, Jesus, our Jesus, is Lord. So it's all about contrast. Verse 5 tells us this. Second thing we find in 46.1 is the idols of Babylon, this nation not yet in existence, are being described. In fact, their fate is being described. The idols are brought down and placed by men on the backs of beasts and cattle. Bel has bowed down. The idol has fallen. Nebo stoops over. Their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. What does this mean? Well, in the ancient world, one explanation that I think makes sense, in the ancient world, 
a conquering nation would take the idols of the nation they conquered and replace those idols with their own. The idols would be brought back as spoil and as a sign of ultimate victory, perhaps a warning to other nations that they and their gods are no match for us. Look what happened to the gods of Babylon. They did not save them. Here they are. The idols of the nations can't walk for themselves. They must be carried by beasts. God says to idolaters, the things that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. The things that men worship must be carried by men, and in this case, by beasts. That's the picture that we got, that we're being given here in verse 1. Animals that God created, in other words, have more value and power than speechless, lifeless idols. It's a picture, brethren, of utter humiliation. God is showing how contemptible and foolish it is to serve idols to the neglect of the living God. Idols must be carried, but I carry you. That's the way it should be, shouldn't it? The four-footed animals and cattle can walk, and therefore they do more than the idols you would compare to me. This is the big idea. They're all lifeless, powerless, and therefore utterly useless. In verse 2, moving on through this contrast, we see that the idols cannot save each other. Together, Bel and Nebo fall down. They stooped over, they have bowed down together. They could not rescue the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. But this picture of them falling down together is perhaps a picture of them not able to save themselves. And what of their worshipers? One can imagine religious Babylonians. Here they're being brought out of Babylon. They're in captivity. Their city and nation have been destroyed. And they're being led to the nation that has destroyed them. Or their rule is being imposed upon them. And they watch these Medes go into their temple, pull down their idol, and put them on the backs of cattle and oxen and beasts of burden. And maybe they covered them up, maybe not, so that all could see. And they they watch these images, these idols that they worship, being carried on animals. And they're horrified. Maybe they're walking alongside them. And they try to intercede for their gods. Please, Mr. Persian soldier, Mr. Median soldier, don't put our gods on the backs of animals. Let us carry them. Please don't treat our gods like this. Isaiah says they could not rescue the burden. The worshipers couldn't rescue their idols. The idols of men have become the burdens of beasts, And how ridiculous that your gods must be saved by their worshipers and not the other way around. It's a picture of the worshipers appealing to the conquerors in order to save their idols. 
completely backwards, isn't it? It's a picture of utter loss, isn't it? It's sad, really. Not only foolish, but sad. To think of religious Babylonians putting all their faith in idols that cannot even speak, let alone save. Being taken away. And all of their eggs were in the basket of that idol. And that idol has completely left them. Destitute. With no means of salvation. With no hope. And with the thought, I literally have wasted my life. That's what the feeling is like when you stand before God outside of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is you're living for today is going to leave you wanting in that day when you give account. And you're going to have an immediate horrifying sense that I am lost forever and ever because I made a bad choice. I chose to love something other than Jesus Christ. And what's amazing is one day you will bow before Jesus, whether you're one of his people or not, and you'll recognize him to be Lord. But the appeal from the passage, and I can't even wait till the end of the sermon, is why not do that now? While it's a day of grace and a day of salvation, a day in which you can be washed from your sin and made right with God and not have to worry about a day of utter and complete and eternal loss. You can believe now and be saved. You could change your course now and repent. That's an awesome opportunity. You don't have to be like these sad, foolish idolaters. So before we even get to verses 3 through 5, we're able to see the utter ridiculousness and, and, and really sadness of worshiping false gods. There are no gods at all. They can't save, can't do anything for themselves, can't even save themselves, let, let alone others. They can't do what the animals can do, let alone what God can do. To whom will you compare me, God says? These idols? These guys, please, please, incomparable, right? Idols that need to be saved by the ones who worship them are no gods at all. All right, now we move to the comfort of the passage. It's found in verses 3 through 5. God says to his people, listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you have, who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, speaking to the believing remnant who are God's true people, not only in his day, not only in the day of Babylon, but in every day and age. This is for all of us, brethren, to encourage them to trust and to believe. He's about to show them another way. He's about to remind them of their God, that he's wholly distinct from the dumb idols of the nation, of the nations. He not only truly loves his people, but is amazingly faithful and able to support his 
and bless his people from the cradle to the grave. And that's what he is going to remind them of. Consider my dealings with you in history, first of all. You've been born by me from birth and have been carried, have been carried from the womb. He describes his relationship to his people in terms of the relationship of a pregnant woman and a caring mother. I have borne you from the beginning. Look back on your history. You guys were doing that in Sunday school just over the last year. Look back over the course of your walk with God. Look back over the course of your life and and, and know that, that I have carried you, haven't I? And he uses this this beautiful imagery of a mother carrying a baby in her womb. I have borne you, carried you when you were most vulnerable and being created and fashioning you. God had his eye upon you. He was over the whole process of you being created and of you developing carefully and delicately and beautifully and wonderfully within the womb of your mom. He knew you then. And he was over that whole process. We can understand this imagery as well of the nation of Israel. God calling the nation from Abram In Genesis, he's using Egypt as his womb to allow them to grow from a few dozen into a few million. I just read this morning my devotions, Genesis 46, and and the brothers of Joseph have come back to Jacob, and they're like, come, Joseph's alive, and he's invited us, we can go to Egypt. And Jacob is hesitant. He's like, this is the land God promised me. I I need to stay here. What it takes for Jacob to listen to his sons is a divine vision, right? And what does God tell Jacob in, in, in Genesis 46, 3 through 4? He's assuring him to go to Egypt. It's okay. And from Egypt, in that place, I'm going to make from you a great nation. This is the wisdom of God. He uses a superpower in the ancient world to be the mother, so to speak, of his child Israel when she was just a few dozen people. And they go down there, and he oversees the whole process through Pharaoh. He's directing the mind and heart of Pharaoh. He's raised Joseph up to a position of power and influence. They get the best of the land. Pharaoh's going to provide them with, with other people to help them. And it's from within that super power, ancient Egypt, you know, the pyramids, ruling the entire world, within the safety of that nation, God is overseeing the development of his own nation into a nation of millions 400 years later. And he brings them out, doesn't he? And he's telling Israel, To do what you all have done this morning. Remember your beginning. Remember from where you came. When you were born again. I don't know, when I was first born again, I wondered if I was going to believe in a week. I had grown up in this easy believism, and I I still had these thoughts I could lose my salvation. I remember saying to the pastor, how do I know I'm going to believe 
in six months in a year. And he says, Adam, God's going to give you faith. And I look back from the time I was born and, and in those toddler years of a Christian, and I say, yes, Lord. I'm now 31 years into this because you have carried me, because you've borne me, because you have been with me. That's what he's telling them. I've been with you, Christian. I've been with you, dear Israel, as Isaiah would think of them, from when you were born as a nation. And think about all of the times that this nation could have been destroyed. They got the the army of Pharaoh right on their heels, and then they come to the Red Sea. Where are we going to go? They got no weapons. They got no chariots. All they have is God. That's all they need. And he splits the Red Sea, as we heard in Psalm 136, and they walk through on dry land. And the walls of water are next to them. And they get through to the other side, and God uses that Red Sea to destroy this menacing army. And he saves them and delivers them. I mean, so delicate. They're without food. They're without water. They're on the brink of extinction, and yet God carries them. God's providing for them. God's blessing them. Leading by a pillar of fire at night. And by a pillar of cloud by day. Changing his form to protect Israel. To provide for Israel. Beautiful picture of God bearing us and bearing Israel from birth. As a woman cares for her child, feeds it, clothes it, comforts that baby in the middle of the night. My daughter just had another child, little baby, Luke. And you know how these babies, they're so delicate. You know, when you hand them to someone to hold, it's a very careful sort of anxiety process, especially for a new dad or, or someone like one of my kids who hasn't hold babies. And they just, they just grab that child and you don't want to upset it and you want to comfort it and you just squeeze it into you. I had this picture vividly before me the last month. We had the blessing of our grandkids with us. And I couldn't get my wife off the couch. What was I going to tell her? She had a baby on her the whole month. And this little baby's just out like it, like legs are everywhere, and it's just completely at peace, and it feels the security of his grandmother or mother holding it. It's communicating that everything's going to be all right. You're in my arms. I got you. This is the way God describes his care for us. It's beautiful. I made you a people who weren't a people. Evidences of my protection are all about in our individual histories in the history of the church, the history of Israel, certainly. You've been born while in the womb and carried from it. Consider my promise for your future. This is the second aspect of comfort in verse 4. Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. You know, my care for you, my love for you is not going away. Though you're entering the graying years. God doesn't raise us, carry us from being baby Christians 
only to let us go when we come of age. You know, as we raise children, there's a sense in which we raise them for that. We raise them to be independent, right? To go out and get a job. Come on, son, you're 35. It's time to, you know, sell your Xbox on Facebook Marketplace and go get a real job and go get your own house and toothpaste and everything else. We want them to grow and develop so that they can experience independence, and sometimes we can think of that as Christians. Like we get to a certain place of maturity and we think to ourselves, why do I keep falling in this sin? Why do I still have need of grace? Why haven't I made some progress and at least more advancement as I hoped I would at this stage of my life, 30 years a Christian? He doesn't raise us from being babies only to let us go when we come of age. We're described in this passage as being eternally dependent and needy. We're not a people that need God when we're little, but not when we're old. Or when we don't have experience, but now we need less direction as we've become older. In fact, the older we get, the more often we come back to to start feeling our need of God more acutely, don't we? When we're young, we feel it, and it's evidenced by our dependence on parents. As we grow up, and we're in the prime of life, and we're strong, we don't feel like we need anybody. Maybe there's somebody in here who feels that way. You feel like you can take on the world. But as you get older, the aches and pains and the memory and things just like set in. And you begin to decline. And that, that need is felt more and more acutely as we age. Here God says that I've carried you, my children, and I'm carrying you now, and I'm committed to carrying you and providing for you until you're old and gray. And even in the midst of being old and gray, here's my commitment. Right? I will be the same. I'll continue to carry you. I'll continue to support you. I've not left you in the graying years. Consider the contrast and emphasis of God's word. Again, he spoke of those dumb idols being carried, unable to walk on their own two feet, needing to be carried by the ox. I carry you. This is the prerogative of God. It's not the pastor, it's not the church, it's not your husband, it's not your wife, it's nobody else in the world, it's not your bank account. God takes it upon himself to carry his people. I support you and I carry my people by my outstretched arm. I'm not a God that needs to be carried. I'm not a God that needs to be saved. I am the only God of heaven and earth who carries those who confide and put their trust in him. He carries us. I, I, I. You see it in that verse, right? Consider the manner of God's care for his people. I've already alluded to it. He describes the way he carries us in terms of a loving mother. Carefully and lovingly carrying her, her newborn baby. 
He doesn't just throw you into a sack like an empty sack of potatoes and throw you over his back and just march out of the woods with you. That's not how God carries his people, but he carries us like a, like a loving mother does. A little baby in the womb taking care of herself when the baby's born. Carefully, gently, attending to its every need. When it can't do it. You know, kids, you were at that point in your life when you didn't realize you had gone to the bathroom. It's not because you didn't know you were in the bathroom. It's because you went in your pants. Couldn't do anything about it. And if it wasn't for your mom or dad checking on your pants regularly to make sure you were clean, you'd have still been dirty and probably died of disease. You certainly probably would have needed more than any big bottle of desitin could provide. I hear the moms giggling, some of the dads. Those needs that we take for granted, we can just take care of ourselves. You can't take care of those when you're a kid, when you're a baby. This is, this is the way God cares for us. Brethren, there's ways we need care we're not even aware of, even, even as we get older. God's constantly checking on us. Not just when we're baby Christians, all throughout our life. He's tending to our needs. He's paying attention to where we're at, spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. And he's providing for us in areas we're not even aware of. You know, we, we thank God this morning. You guys did that in your praise and thanksgiving service. But how many ways did God provide for you that you can't even think of? Ways that you're not even aware of. We need to praise God for that too. Ways that God has provided that we're not even aware of. You left a minute late. One minute earlier, you would have been in that accident. All kinds of things that could happen to you. Remember what God compares you to, what men are compared to in Scripture. We're not compared to the strength of an ox. Or the power of a whale or of a, of a dinosaur. We're compared to grass. That's here today and it's gone tomorrow. We are so, so very delicate. The sun comes out and scorched, we're dead. The balance it takes to keep human beings alive. It's not up to men and watching their carbon footprint. The balance of the earth's temperature is so delicate and so amazingly uh, incredibly hard to keep. Thank God it's not dependent on us, it's dependent on God to keep it just right that we don't get too cold, that we die or we don't burn up. The delicate balances and positioning of the planets to the sun. Yes, we need sun, but not too much sun. Yes, we need sun, but not too little sun. God's paying attention to all of those things. This is the manner of God's care for his people. He carries us in a manner, in other words, that's loving and reassuring. He's able to communicate spiritual peace and strength to the souls of people. What are you worshiping that can do that? What are you serving other than God that can literally communicate peace and a sense of well-being to your heart. You don't have anything that can do that. See, it's not just our outward man that we need to pay attention to, avoiding accidents, eating the right foods, 
keeping the right amount of clothing on, temperature in the house, go feed the stove again, whatever. It's the spiritual need that we have that's greatest. And God can communicate a sense of well-being to you when you believe in Christ, when you serve him, and when you're part of his family. In old age, when you're young, whatever. Consider the unchangeableness of his care. God is immutable and unchangeable. And when we think about the attributes of God, sometimes we get bored. Ah, the immutability of God, we know that. He doesn't change yet. But here's where it becomes incredibly practical. Just as he's born you and began a good work in you, he's not going to give up on it. He's going to be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to bear you when you're young and when you're old. Because he, unlike you and I, is unchangeable. He doesn't have these feelings that come and go. One day I'm feeling good, the next day I'm not feeling good. Like our feelings and the way we are inwardly, it's all over the map and sometimes we don't even know why. My poor kids and family. I'm battling irritability the last two days. And snapping at my kids yesterday. Venting here and there. And I don't know why, I just feel tired. I feel like just everything. You know those days where like the little things that are just little, they're just like huge to you. You can't get over it. You're just just so worked up. Can anybody relate to that? Now we need to fight it. I'm not excusing it. It's a sin. We've got to fight that. But it's just, it's just illustrated with the fact that that's how we are. God's not like that. He's always pleasant to be around. If you're his child, he never snaps. He never gets irritable. His love is constant. We need to be more immutable, don't we? We need to be more like God. We certainly need God. It's an attribute of God that will never be in one sense. But, but it's something we need to strive for. Because when we think about the fact that God's unchangeable, what does that mean for us? It means stability and strength. We sing of him when we sing songs like Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. Rock is immutable. It's impregnable. It's there day in and day out, day in and day out. You know what day in and day out, day in and day out is to this culture we're living in? Boring. But I say it's stability. I say it's what your wife needs. It's what your husband needs. It's what your kids need. Dependability and constant is strength. It's not boring. It's hard. It's not easy. But God is ultimately unchangeable in his care for us. His love for us is continuing up until these Graying years that we find ourselves in. And this is the point of the passage that just warmed my heart and led me to want to preach it to God's people in Catskill and up here. I think of these graying years once again. Years where we feel and experience real decline. We intensely fear our vulnerability and weakness. More pain, less strength. More confusion, less clarity, more physical issues to deal with than we had before. Some we never anticipated. Inward struggle, 
discouragement, temptation to be discouraged. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Death itself is not an easy thing as we get older. The shadow of death gets darker and darker. We know we're getting closer. And it's not easy to live in the valley of the shadow of death. Death is really close when we enter that valley. The shadow of it is casting down upon us. When we think of our own death. But what a blessing to know that God is still carrying us, brethren, in that valley and in that shadow. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He's not left you in the graying years. What a blessing to know that though we're growing older and can do less for God... He never ceases to do less for us. That he's committed to his promise to never leave us or forsake us. Remember these words when you get discouraged in the graying years. I made you. I will carry you. I will bear you. And I will deliver you. Unlike the gods of this world that need men to do everything. The Lord saves and not we ourselves. The blessing of humbling ourselves and realizing that we're sinners and can do nothing to save ourselves. That we need God from beginning to end. We need to cast all our eggs into that basket. And I love just these reassurances of scripture that are so used to us but so powerful. He who believes upon me, Jesus, will not be disappointed. What an assurance What blessed promises we have. He leads us. We shall not want. Believer, listen to the word of God as we close this morning's message and challenge of God. And do not ever think God is like the gods of this world, impotent and unloving. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me That we would be alike. Fill your mind with thoughts of God. Heavenly Father. Loving shepherd. A tender, loving mother. Revealed in the pages of this book. Psalm 103. So many places. And like the thoughts of God's power, love and commitment to you. In the graying years comfort you. You know, I threw in another application here as I thought about this this morning. And I think it's applicable to us. If God is like this to his people, then God's people should aspire to be like him and tenderly care for aging saints. They don't just need their retirement, social security. They need you personally, relationally to remember them as they grow older. You know, it's amazing. You go to these nursing home ministries, you know what cheers them the most? It's not your money. Certainly not our singing. It's just our presence. 
took time out of our day to go visit them and be with them relationally, lovingly. Now I know we're all busy, working two jobs, three jobs, got our own kids. But we got to ask ourselves, am I like God? Am I remembering the saints in the graying years? Get it together. I'm proud of this church and the way you remember those saints last week when you went to their house and moved them. Thank you. I praise God for you that it's not just the family looking out for them. It's this church, God's people, Don't underestimate the value of what you did a week ago. Look around and remember the gray hairs in your midst. They need your phone calls. They need your visits. They need your help. And to do that is to be like God. This is true and undefiled religion. To visit orphans and widows. To visit those in their graying years. You won't get as many visits as they used to. I mean, I'll be honest, I I don't understand it because my house is so crazy, like I'm looking forward to a little peace. But everyone tells me, Adam, you're going to wish the crazy years were back again. And don't get me wrong, I love it, but you get the point, right? There's times where it's just overwhelming, right? No. Enjoy every day, people around you. Now I'm going to close with one last application because I can't not. I mean, the passage just lends itself to you who don't know Jesus. And I've already appealed to you throughout the sermon. I mean, if you're not serving the Lord Jesus Christ, that means you're serving another God, a false God, which in the end will leave you in utter despair. Think about what happened to these who worship false idols that we read of here. Think about the utter despair they must have felt when their gods couldn't only save them, they couldn't only not save them, couldn't save themselves. And all of the things they lived for, they lost. Man, that is going to be your experience if you don't know Jesus Christ. Look at me and pay attention. You are going to suffer utter, complete, final, and eternal loss in that day. That you will not be able to fix. And even if you ask the Lord to save you in that day, He will not listen because the day of grace is is over. And we don't want you to experience that. We don't want you to go to hell. A place of aloneness and utter despair. You know, I'm I'm working through this series called Alone. Anybody heard of it? These people, Dick, Dick's an outdoorsman, He's, he's seen it, he's heard it. These people sign up to get dropped on an island five miles from the nearest person to be alone. They can bring ten things for survival. Now they're put in a place where there's food, there's water. They have to find it, shelter, they got to create it. Okay, so it's not like they're in the middle of the desert. They're just going to die, you know, there's no hope. There's hope, right? The thing that is striking about this show 
is how they're able to eat, they're able to provide shelter, but they cannot handle being without human companionship. They go crazy. They grow so intensely lonely that they tap out. And $500,000, at least in their early season, is on the line. Later, it's a million. They cannot even withstand it for a half a million dollars. Money cannot replace the blessing of their wives, the blessing of people. But do you realize what this taught me as I'm working through this series? Like, this is the horror of hell, at least one of them. Not only will you experience being completely alone from other humans, you'll be stripped of all of the presence of God in your life. And that is the true pain of hell. It's what Jesus expressed on the cross. My God, my God. He didn't say, why have you cast me into the lake of fire? He said, why have you forsaken me? This sense of utter destruction and loss that he felt on behalf of sinners moved him to blurt that prayer out. You don't want to be alone forever. Whatever it is, is it a person that you're living for other than Jesus? Is it money? What is it? Some lust? What what can it be? Hopes of honor and glory from your business? From your employer? From politics? What, what What do you want more than Christ? What are you sacrificing Jesus for? I'm telling you, don't do it. Turn from every other idol to serve the true and living God. Believe in Jesus and he will save you. And this is what he assures you of. If you do that, you won't be disappointed. And you look around and you talk to the people in your life who know Christ. And you ask them, are you disappointed for believing in Jesus? And with one voice they will say to you, absolutely not. He has been so kind and good to me. He has given me rest, and his burden is light, and I praise him. I praise him and thank him for being merciful, not only in the past, but today. And I praise him for the mercy he'll continue to give. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this few minutes we could spend in the word to consider this passage, to consider your glory. Not only your distinctness from from every other false god, your your power to carry your people, the way that you carry us tenderly, your remembrance of us in years that are hard and difficult as we grow older, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Be that to your people here. Be that to all who call upon you in faith, turning from sin, believing in your Son. I pray that none in this room would ever hear those words from Christ, depart. I never knew you, but that all in here would come to know Christ, come to be forgiven, come to know you, Lord, whom to know is life eternal. Please, Lord, give us a token of your favor and grace and and reach down into the souls of people today and make them yours. Please, Lord, give them the new birth. 
Bring them to the place where they call upon the name of Christ and are saved. Thank you for this time. In his name, amen.